Welcome back to Time Shifters. This is your host, Christopher Page. And once again, in studio, Matt Flynn. Hey, Matt, welcome once again. Thanks. Um, I, I don't think I've been looking forward to anything quite as much as this. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you'd be excited about this. This this time, we decided to take uh, one of the movies from our uh, five favorite movie lists. and uh, or from what you, We decided to take one from each of our... Uh, uh, I can't say this right. We decided to take one from each other's list and watch and and discuss it. So we're going to start out with one off of Matt's list, and it's, I think, was this the one? This was your favorite? This is number one. This was number one, A Clockwork Orange. Yeah. And this was the film that I, like I had said, I tried watching years, decades ago and didn't, didn't get it, didn't get into it, didn't even finish it, and never went back to it. So this was a first... Honestly, a first-time watch is really okay. what it would kind of boil down to. So this should be an interesting discussion, I think. Um, you know, I'd always heard a lot about it. It's one of those films that I have always thought I should go back and, <laughs> and watch just because of its kind of place in history and cinematic history. Uh, so it was one I'd been meaning to do. So I'm kind of glad I finally got, I guess, if I needed an excuse to do it, I finally got an excuse to do it. Yeah. Its reputation precedes it, certainly. Definitely. But I was actually kind of surprised when I was watching it. it certainly, it is a violent film. It's you know, a little disturbing in some of the themes. But maybe it's just kind of 21st century me looking back on a 45-year-old film. It's probably not as bad as some films I've seen since or that have been made since. So I thought that was interesting. It was a, it, I was a little surprised. Yeah, um, yeah, I think in terms of just what you're looking at, um, is a lot more muted. I mean, I think you have, have things now that probably don't deal with violence on that level, but what they show is a lot more graphic, a lot more gory, you know, just as something simple as, oh, somebody just lost their hand in an accident and it's what they're showing is five times more worse. But in terms of the subject matter of the violence they're dealing with in a clockwork orange, is something that you you just can't pass. That's just that's the peak of it all. Yeah, maybe maybe that's it. Maybe you know. Yeah, the, certainly films have gotten gorier. I was I'm actually surprised that the violence you see you see a lot of a build up to violence, but not the actual violence in some cases. Yeah. I guess if that's one way to put it. But it's still you know that what's happening or what did happen is horrific. Right. And. And it doesn't really let up, honestly. Throughout the entire film, in one way or another, there is horrific things going on to one person or another through the entire film. Yeah, and I don't. I kind of. I don't think this was Kubrick's intention, but I, I kind of compared a little bit to Hitchcock in terms of they leave the worst part for your imagination. Yeah, yeah. They they build it up. That tension goes up. I mean, there's still physical violence. There's still just horrible moments, but when it comes to the worst of it, that's when the scene ends. Mm -hmm. Well, a little, just a little tiny bit of backstory, just for anyone who, uh, who may be like me, which I doubt there are any. Uh, <laughs> Clockwork Orange, 1971. It was adapted, produced, and directed by Stanley Kubrick. Uh, it was based on a novel of the same name by Anthony Burgess. Yep. Did you ever read the novel? I didn't. Um, I, I've, I've had a copy of it before, and I flipped through it. And just that that 
form of dialect that Alex has is just page after page after page. And I thought, if I'm going to read this, I need to be in a really quiet place where I <laughs> so can focus. <laughs> so I've never had the opportunity to do that. Um, mm. But it, it seems like it would be um, really fun, especially since I've seen the movie so many times. And maybe that would help me focus a little bit more since I kind of have an idea of where it would be going. Right. Yeah. I just doing a little research online and everything, there were there was a couple comments about how it the, the movie was a little different from the book in a couple places. Yes. Um, sounded like it was mostly pretty faithful, right. but there was a few minor, you know, di- directorial changes. Yes. Um, one of which was the fact that you know, there is actually no reference to a Clockwork Orange in the movie, which apparently is actually the novel that the author that gets attacked in the film or in, and in, in the, in, in the yeah. book, that's the novel he's writing. Right. And that's what the book, the title of the book references. And there was no reference to it whatsoever in the right. film. That's one of the things that it took me forever. It wasn't actually until I read that till I actually understood <laughs> what in the world does the clockwork orange even mean. Right. It, I think it took me a little bit to wrap my head around the fact that it is, um, kind of a, a British film and a British term, a clockwork, like a clockwork mouse or a clockwork toy. Yeah. We here in the States would say a wind-up, maybe, or something. And so so a clockwork orange, I heard, was it's mechanical on the inside, flesh on the outside would Mm -hmm. be what a clockwork orange is. And that's what they – I read kind of what Alex kind of becomes uh, in the end of the film. We're we're getting ahead of ourselves there. But, (laughs) um, yeah, I was just curious if you'd actually read the novel. Yeah, I certainly haven't. No, not yet. Right. It's it's on a list. <laughs> I could see where that very particular kind of dialect would be you'd have to concentrate on in order to read. Yeah. I, I just tried or I, I did just read a, a, a novel that was uh, about an, an Irish um, group and it was written in a very thick Irish accent and the book was written in this accent oh. and in the Irish slang. And it was like, what if I hadn't seen the movie first that the book was, you know, that was based or that the, uh, if I hadn't seen the movie first that was based on the book, I think I probably would have had a hard time <laughs> knowing what right. in the world anybody was, what was going on. Yeah. That, that was the issue. I think, cause I only had seen the movie, I think once when I picked up the book and I went, this isn't enough to know it for me to know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. So probably down the road. Now, how did you discover the film? I don't remember if you covered that, if you mentioned that in our previous um, discussion or not. Boy, um, it was probably five or six years ago where I saw it for the first time. I think it was just one of those chance encounters. Just, it was on a movie channel and I just decided, Hey, I've heard a lot about this. Caught it right at the opening, like the opening credits. I was like, great. It's the beginning. I've heard about it. Let me see it. Fell in love with it immediately. Wow, interesting. I see. I, I remember one of the things you said. You're talking about some of the shots yeah. of the film and how either each of them could be their own work of art if you just yeah. printed them off. And there, I definitely could see, and I definitely agree. There is some beautiful camera work. He yeah. does. Uh, Kubrick used like a wide angle lens mm-hmm. on some of the stuff, so it's you see the entire room from literally like from corner to corner, like you are that fourth wall right? and you see everything else in that room. And sometimes it's just maybe a little distorted, but you see everything. It's one of those shots where even if there's nothing there, you're looking through the entire shot to try to find, okay, what's, 
what does he want me to see? There's yeah. something hidden. Is there something <laughs> hidden here? That that happened a few times throughout the the, the movie, where every so something would stand out. Like, was that intentional? Right. <laughs> or was that just happened? Exactly. Was, was that there? Did that mean something? Do I need to look this up? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that was especially for this movie. That's definitely something I think Kubrick wanted people to to wonder about because there is so much to see, and it's probably one of the reasons I've watched it so many times. Is there's so many things to miss just in terms of the artwork hanging or mm-hmm. or the design of the light or in the one scene where the cats are moving all over the place and you're just trying to keep track of it all. But at the end of the day, no, you're supposed to just watch Alex and see what he does and see what he says. But there are other scenes where it's like there's a bunch of people and you could see some actor who decided, I'm going to give a certain facial reaction. And if you watch just that character in the scene, the scene's kind of different than if you look at somebody sitting next to that (laughs) character and watch his facial reactions. Now the scene feels a little different. And it's just sort of that intention that Kubrick had of, you could watch this scene five times and it could feel different five different ways. Yeah, exactly. It was a um, a financial uh, hit here in the states. I did I couldn't find out uh, find any uh, statistics about what it did overseas or, or anywhere else. But I'm I'm wondering it got it was it got really hard ratings at first. Yes, uh, it was a, initially rated X even yes. here in the states, mm-hmm. and then I think they actually had to kind of go to the board and ask them to review it again and, and bring it down to an R. Um, so but I have to admit, and a lot of it had to have been because it was something that probably no one had ever seen before. This is 1971. Yeah. And a film like this, showing this stuff, showing it on camera, the you know, the, if not the entire act of some of these crimes, certainly the buildup to them, and then the, uh, the general themes of the rest of the film, I can't think of anything that was done prior to that in that visceral manner. Right. And I think a lot of it, it just goes back to what we were just saying of the, it's kind of that still shot or it's a wide shot and it's never the camera. We don't cut. It doesn't Mm -hmm. shake around. It doesn't distort what you're seeing. It's like, no, here's a horrible thing. You can't look away from it. Right. I think that really played into it of we're going to cut now. Right. Yeah. Where's the quick cuts? Right. Where like, can we move around? Can we just like see debris fly around? Like, no, we're just going to, you're going to stare at it and Mm -hmm. you've got no choice. And I think that's really what led to it getting that rating of, you know, you've got a woman being attacked and she's got no clothes on and you're seeing everything and then you can't look away. And the thing about, yeah, it did, it had an X rating in Europe. It had an X rating in the States. Um, then to knock it down, he only removed 20 seconds. Really? That it wasn't a big difference. Um, that's according to Malcolm McDowell. He only removed about 20 seconds. And when you watch them one after the other, you can't figure out what he removed. So I've never technically seen the X rating. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine what was really changed then if it was 20 seconds. Yeah, I, I, it had to have been just a little less time with yeah. the, the, the women or maybe you saw more of malcolm than you know you do in the in the final print or something you know when they when he's going to prison or something and i'm kind of jumping all over the plot of this thing (laughs) we're we're jumping all over the place um i know you came with a ton of notes yeah i I was kind of curious i was almost wondering if you would kind of almost take this over and just sort of you know (laughs) what did you come up with what did you want to talk about and you do almost kind of Uh, i could talk did you you have questions for me yeah you know having watched this film for the first time yeah so i mean i could easily talk about this movie all day um i i rewatched it again just two nights ago and i had no idea what i was going to write down and i ended up with six pages of notes um but i want to ask you 
um, was there a point where you're like, I kind of want to turn it off again? Like, were you uncomfortable again? Was there a moment or did you think, oh, I can do this. This is fine. Nope. This was a film where it, I think it's just a matter of where I was then versus where I am now, okay. both in just my cinematic history and just you know, what, what have I seen? And uh, I've seen a lot of, a lot gorier. I've seen a lot more you know, violent, uh, and this one was, I think maybe it was the surrealism of the, of the film yeah. that probably threw me off when I was younger, which is now having a film that's just that little bit off kilter, I kind of love. Yeah. I mean, I, I really dig it. So I actually found myself really enjoying watching it the whole time. I, I'd never felt uncomfortable watching it. Yeah. I mean, and it's just like you said, it's just off kilter. It's just a little off normal, but it's still close enough to normal that you're like, this could happen. Like, this is a little bit real. Like, it's almost like a dream, certain, yeah, certain yeah, yeah. parts where you're like, I can envision this. It's just not so abstract and, and so ridiculous that you're just like, well, it's just weird. It's no, it's semi real. Right. I guess. I like the, uh, it's a dream. That's, that's a great analogy. Cause one of the things I really, that, that, that stood out to me was, you know, outside, you know, Alex, you know, lives in this, uh, like, tenement housing yeah. and the exterior is crap the elevator's broken there's garbage everywhere but he goes up the stairs and goes into his flat where he lives with his parents and yes it's an exaggerated kind of technicolor version of a 70s late 60s early 70s swag apartment but it's <laughs> it's a clean. nice it's clean it is nice you can they have nice things it's a nice looking place you know it's weird but that that's very almost like you would have a dream where you're in some place horrible and you open a door and oh look there's a unicorn and wow, yeah. yeah and gold and yeah his parents apartment is probably the the when when I was first watching this movie the first few times I saw it was the area that really confused me more than anywhere else because the outside I thought the building was abandoned I thought mm -hmm. he was just going to yeah. go squat somewhere and then he walks into this place that is kind of nice and clean but it's also you're in one room and one wall is bright blue and the wall next to it is bright red and it's got this pink artwork up on the wall and then his mom's got the colored hair but his dad's in the nice suit and I'm just sort of like are these people real? <laughs> like these yeah. are his parents and they're very normal. They're very yes. dry. They're very boring next to his flamboyance. And I'm just sitting there going, how did any of this happen? <laughs> and yeah. that's that dream like feel more than any other part of the movie. I feel is just his normal home life. I think that is a great uh, way to describe the, um, the, the driving scene. The, was it the, uh, the hog of the road yeah. as you're driving along the car where it's obviously, you know, them in a static, you know, in studio thing with like a green screen yeah. kind of thing going on. But it, it actually really works for We're that great. scene because it kind of, it, it gives you that surrealness, that dreamlike quality. And I mean, it actually ends up being a really fun scene. I could actually mm -hmm. watch that scene. There's a scene that I could watch a few times and just enjoy it every time. Yeah. And I, I almost wonder if Kubrick came along and said, okay. The, the technology we have to simulate driving is awful. It doesn't look real. 
maybe I'll build a world yeah, around let's it. Let's go with that. Yeah, <laughs> let's just make everything kind of look like that, and then it fits. Mm-hmm. And and it's just it's also the actors did a good job of like you have Dim holding his hat down because he yeah. doesn't want to lose it in the convertible, and I'm just sitting there going, "You're not going to lose it because they're just blowing <laughs> a fan on you." But it it totally works. But then it also cuts to the first person view of seeing the cars he's running off the road, and then it cuts back to them, and then you see the car behind them that they just ran off the road. And yeah, but you could tell that all of that is like projected. Exactly. Yeah. But and yeah, it, it's still totally totally works and and it's also really quick and you're getting the great voiceover mm-hmm. of Malcolm McDowell with Alex's the narration monologue. makes the film so it good. really does it is so good so, i mean despite what you're what he is this real calming voice yeah. and tone to his voice and you kind of want him to, you you wish Malcolm McDowell had gone into business narrating books rather than <laughs> film <laughs> he may have i mean he's done a lot of voice work um, I, I, I love his voice. I could listen to it all the time and it was fun listening to, to the movie with the commentary cause he's in it. Mm-hmm. And I think he recorded it 35 years after the movie came out and he still remembered the lines and, and just hearing him do the lines as an adult. And then it comes up again when he was much well, younger. Well, how many of them have probably been quoted back to him exactly. over the years? <laughs> yeah. But he's still like, as the scene's coming up, he said it 10 seconds before it would come up. And she's like, that's really cool that he's just right back there and, and, but and then he's still doing it with that that calm tone in his voice, and then you hear it back from seventy one, and yeah, his voice was one of those things that really pulled me in, especially since that's how the movie opens. Mm, yes. it opens with that that narration and that voiceover, and he's really calm, and then that music is playing, and it's that synthesizer kind of thing, and you just hear like just things dropping, and it it that scene is one of my favorites. That that was when I watched it for the first time i went this is different yes <laughs> and this has pulled me in immediately and this that's the scene anytime somebody says sell me on this movie i'll show them that and i go did you like it you did keep watching you didn't like it don't watch it because it's kind of more of the same his the character and how he portrays the character i actually i described it in my my notes is i mean he's the kind of character that he might help you with your groceries or he might bust your skull in. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's in in a lot of ways he he's kind of that the villains that we really like now. He's kind of in, in a he he's he's kind of cut from the same cloth of like the Joker or or Moriarty. Yeah. Of yeah, he could he could kill you or he could save you. It kind of depends on his mood. Mm-hmm. Um and that was one of the fun things about the character is he's an animal, but he's a sophisticated animal. Um, incredibly polite, very polite. Like the scene when they're in the milk bar and the, the opera singer starts singing and Mm. he's just enjoying it. That, you know, what's funny (laughs) of all the scenes that there are in there that made me wince when he took his cane and whacked was it, was it Georgie? I think, uh, dim, was it dim, 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 make, you know, make some nasty noise at the woman that's singing, you know, Beethoven's ninth. And he takes that cane and whacks it across his lap. Yeah. Like, that hurt. <laughs> yeah, I I think they were really hitting each other. Um, I I do know that the much later in the movie when um when when they're showing that Alex's treatment is working and the guy's got his heel on Alex's chest, he's really doing that. And mm-hmm. Malcolm McDowell actually got significantly injured from that. So I'm pretty sure Kubrick said hit each other for real. 
And so I think that's why it looks like that, because the guy's getting hit with a yeah. thick cane. Well, especially because then his lines afterwards, the whole time he's saying these lines, he's he's kind of rubbing, rubbing his, his leg. leg. <laughs> he, he wants to rub his leg, but it hurts to rub his leg. I'm like, I think that's real. <laughs> yeah. And if it wasn't real, it's some of the best acting. Very I've, much. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, trying to think uh, something else. Oh, th- there is a quote by Kubrick that he gave. Uh, I think shortly after the movie came out, because um, I know with this movie, it, it was controversial then. It's still controversial now. And we're kind of in this age of um, of trigger warnings and, and trying to people trying to like stay in a comfort zone. For me, movies are all about, at least for me at times, about leaving the comfort zone because it's a safe way to leave the comfort zone. And this movie was probably my first real moment with that. Um but when he was asked, are you attracted to evil characters? Stanley Kubrick said, of course I'm not, but they are good for stories. More people read books about the Nazis than about the UN. Newspapers headline bad news. The bad characters in a story can often be more interesting than the good ones. And I really think not just for this movie, but for a lot of movies, that's very true. Mm-hmm. A hero is only as good as the villain he has to stop. And if the villain is weak... We're not going to care about what the hero has to overcome. But in this movie, there is the hero is the villain, and the villain is the hero. That was something that I, I was hoping would would come up. Is the entire film? In most films, there's someone to root for and someone to you know jeer at. And here, it's the same guy, yeah. and it's you. You feel odd because I mean, he does. Alex does horrible things to other people, and then horrible things are done to him. You're like. Am I supposed to feel sorry for yeah. him? But, I mean, it's kind of not. I mean, that's bad, but... <laughs> it, and they build it up slow. Mm-hmm. It's not a quick turnaround. There there are moments where you're just sort of like, no, he's a monster. Send him to jail. Just have horrible things happen to him. Right. And then you start to see them little bits at a time. You see the guys in the jail winking at him and, you know, blowing him kisses. And you're sort of like, well, that's creepy. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Um, okay. Um, well, maybe Alex isn't so bad. And then you see him imagining, you know, he's reading the Bible and you think, oh, okay, maybe he's changing, you know, maybe he's, you know, getting saved. But then he's only imagining the worst parts of the Bible yeah. and he's imagining he's the one doing them. He's skipping to all the smiting. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. And he's the one inflicting it. You're like, okay, he hasn't changed. I'm back to not liking Alex. Then he goes through the treatment. Mm-hmm. And the part I really like is after his first round of treatment, the very next scene, he's back in his room. The way they shoot it, they shoot it kind of like from a low angle, like from lower than where the bed is. And they look up just enough. And Alex is there and he's got his hand on his chin and he's like kind of slumped over and he's slowly drinking his tea. And the way they just made him look, he looked pathetic and pitiful and you're just sort of like oh, oh poor alex God. wait what He's am i tired. saying yeah. yeah what am i saying no this guy's a jerk and then he goes it's the performance where they're showing that the treatment has worked mm-hmm. And he's getting beat up and he can't do anything about it you're when you're sort of like okay well i guess he that, deserves that yeah and then he goes home and his parents reject him and he's crying and then he goes outside and he gets beat up by all the homeless people and then dim and georgie find mm-hmm. him and beat the holy hell out of him and then you're just sort of like no i'm on his side (laughs) and then he ends up at home and when you see the sign of home 
you're sort of like, no, don't get out there. of it. Don't go there. And that's when you realize I'm on this guy's side. Mm-hmm. And I don't know when that happened, but it was all of those little moments, one after the other. Well, maybe it's not so much you're on his side, but you feel bad because he can't defend himself. He physically can't defend right. himself. And and even if he's getting his comeuppance, you still kind of want him to be able to, to protect himself, protect himself yeah. a little bit. Yeah, it it is. It's weird because, just like you said, you don't know when it happens. But suddenly you're like, well, that poor guy. But you weren't thinking that when he was, you know, terrorizing, you know, a family or right. or beating up some poor homeless guy just because he didn't like the way he was singing. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> um, and then the other thing to me that that stands out in this movie that um, I don't hear a lot of people talk about. Um, there are so many mirrored moments in this movie, things that happen in the beginning that you then see happen the reverse. For example, um, right at the beginning, him and his three droogs. They beat up the homeless guy. Right. And there's this, there's this constant theme of, of the youth versus the, the adult world. Mm-hmm. So, cause they don't really say how old Alex is in the movie. In the book, he's a high schooler. So even though Malcolm McDowell, I think, was well into his twenties, mid twenties at this point, he's still supposed to be like a high school student. I got the impression it would have been maybe he's, senior and yeah guessing maybe he was held back yeah probably (laughs) so they beat up the homeless guy and but later in the movie they switch that all the homeless people beat up him um so the movie so almost kind of rewinds itself yeah and just shows you the other um and then that the idea of four guys against one the four drew the, the big four guys of the gang beating up the homeless guy Later, when Alex is arrested, he's in the interrogation room. How many people are standing over him after he got beat up? Four. Four. It's the truant officer. It's the detective. It's the guy that beat him up. And then there's one other cop in the room. And then it's just this idea of you are where your victim was. Hmm. Um, there's the idea there that Alex beats up his droogs and he does it with no problem. And one of them runs away. He's so scared, but he beats up Dim and Georgie like, like it was nothing. But then what happens later? Dim and Georgie Georgie. beat up him. Right. He can't defend himself, but it still happens. We're going to take that moment. We're going to flip it. Um, he goes, he goes to the, the house that has home in the front and he attacks the writer and attacks the wife. He ends up there later. He's the one who's now becomes the victim. Right. Right. In the same place of his great crime and then it's just all of those moments where i'm just sort of like they kind of told one story twice Mm -hmm. (laughs) and one point the guy was the villain and the next point he was the victim and i thought that was really cool of just well we're just going to kind of loop it back around again and just do it the other way or one of the things that stood out was obviously there's a lot of messaging going on throughout the film uh the most obvious is the which i think is a little bit of the point of um uh, Anthony Burgess, when he originally wrote the novel, and then what Kubrick picked up on is what is good. Yeah, and you know, is it is is good natural? Can good be taught? Can someone be forced to be good? And if they're forced to be good, are they? You know, right. are, are they good? Uh, that was, of course, the most obvious, and and then the blatant, and th- within that, that kind of deals with you know psychiatry and psychology, and I, I read a few things online where they were talking about whether or not this was or was not anti-youth i mean you talked about whether it was uh youth versus the establishment versus youth versus the establishment where this obviously the youth every young person that you see in the film is 
a, a gang member, a hooligan. Yeah. You know, he's he's no good. So do you do you think it was meant to be kind of anti youth or was or pro establishment? Was it anti establishment? Pro establishment? I mean, where do you think it falls? I kind of think they did the good job of showing all sides of it are ugly. That no one is really the good person. Yeah, at the end of the movie, we're kind of on this horrible monster side, but we all know he's a horrible monster. So it, to me, that, that's how it comes out. No one looks good. The youth doesn't look good. Establishment doesn't look good. Prisons don't look good. Doctors don't look good. <laughs> politicians don't look good. Everyone's pretty ugly. And I don't think the message was the world's ugly. I think the message was just sort of, it's whatever you need it to be. You know, this is this is all we have, you know, and make what you can from it. So what do you think about the uh, the, the big message about you know, whether good can be forced or taught or is it natural? Where, where do you think on that? I mean, was what they did to Alex, the treatment, the whole, the whole treatment was an aversion therapy. So as soon as he would think of doing anything bad, he'd get violently ill. So he wouldn't be able to do whatever was he was thinking of. And th- does that make him a good person? I don't think it makes him a good person. Um, it's, it's no different than, you know, the dog wants to go bite somebody and you just keep pulling back at its chain until right. it realizes I shouldn't do that. Is the dog good now? Or is the dog just, no, I don't want to get hurt. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't think it makes him a good person. I think it just, it shows that he's, um, a person who just has his own interests at heart. Cause there's even that part where, when all the homeless people are beating him up and he says, you know, it was better to get hit than to feel that sick. Mm. So I just let them hit me. So he's just, it's all about taking care of himself, whatever the best option is. So that doesn't sound like a good person to me. And a good question with this therapy at one point, I love the, um, how they, the, the demonstration to show how it worked. Yes. They had a guy come out and, you know, calling them names and beating them up and making them lick the bottom of his shoe. Yep. And you know, Alex has nothing. He can't do anything but do what the guy says. And then they bring the beautiful topless woman out. And the whole thing, they do it. It's, it's like a stage play. So everyone they applauds. They, yeah. the, 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 the girl, she comes out. Alex tries to grope her. And he, as soon as he gets anywhere near, he starts gagging and, and doubling over. And then she you know does the bow. And yeah. everyone claps and applauds as she leaves. But it made me wonder, though, how did they truly ruin Alex to the point of he cannot have a relation, a, a you know, a sexual relationship at all? Right. Could he fall in love? Even if you say, okay, I think this aversion therapy is a good idea. He won't think bad thoughts because it'll make him sick. But can he live a life? Can he have a sexual relationship with a woman that he loves? Or is that going to trigger that uh that therapy again i mean there's that is a little darker element that you can read into that in question yeah and then actually in that scene i feel i'll take back what i said that everyone comes off looking bad the one beacon of morality in this movie was the priest Mm -hmm. he's the one who believed in alex even though he was being duped but he's the one who spoke up at that scene he's the one who said what about choice what about free will what about allowing this young man to be who he is we've taken it away and then everyone's like who cares it works yeah and even alex is like yeah i'm getting out be quiet uh he gives him that look and then he looks over at the other guy who says you know it works and he smiles like yeah it does work i'm going home Mm -hmm. and 
that to me, I guess, would be kind of the message of, yeah, maybe we can cure crime and, and all of these things, but at what cost? And it would be at our own free will. And it's, there's this, um, there's this line from a show I like where somebody says, you know, what would you rather have, um, peace or freedom? Mm. You can't have both. Right. So in my mind, I'd rather have freedom, but that means you're not going to have any peace. So it's, it's a terrible decision to make, but that, I think that was kind of the same question that this movie asked. Yeah, I think some people could even ask and and kind of read into that is whether this film was also, in its own way, kind of religion versus science. Yeah. Um, there's a Because they're constantly bringing up um, the idea of God, and he's reading the Bible, and, and he definitely has like this like God complex, and he's there's a great part, I don't know if you caught it, where, um, where Dim and Georgie are the police, and they arrest him. Did you notice their badge numbers? No, I didn't. So, uh, Dim's number is 665. <laughs> Georgie's number is 667. They held nice. Alex between them, making him... 666. Exactly. So, they they snuck things in there like that. That's one of those things where... Yes, you needed, see? Yeah. There was. There, there, was there are little there. things. It's, it's not constantly throughout the movie, but that's one of my favorites. Um so they they do play that they do ask that question of of religion versus science and but again I don't think they give a concrete answer I think they just no, sort no, of said no. science can do this religion can do that what do you prefer I think that's what it does it leaves it open to interpretation of which is which is better because on the one hand there wouldn't Alex wouldn't have committed a crime but look how many people committed crimes against him mm-hmm. you know if you're gonna do this if you did have the choice right exactly so how many of them are criminals now because there's that idea of would you beat someone up? No, they're gonna. They're stronger than me. What if they couldn't hit back? What right. if they couldn't defend themselves? Well, maybe I would, because that guy was a jerk. <laughs> yeah. So, how many more people got turned into criminals because of his treatment and things like that? Yeah, and there, there you go. Right there is. I mean, he was an evil person. That was his nature. These are these these are people that are probably going against their nature. To do this, so so who's the worst? Who's the more of the monster? Right, is what you're really kind of yeah honing in on. Yeah, because it, it's in it's in everybody. Right, and you hear so many people say like, "Oh, I could never do that." It's like well, you could, depending on the right circumstances, and it's mm-hmm. all these people wanting to get revenge against the monster that wronged them in their past. I think, and that is what I liked best about this movie is that it asked a lot of questions. Yeah. And left you to come up with your own answers. Right. And that is something I think is kind of lost in some films today. Um, They spoon feed you everything and give you all the information you need. And at the end, see, Timmy, the moral is. Right. Exactly. (laughs) You know, or, or when a movie tries to not do that and they try to be a little bit more subtle, but not even that subtle. People miss it because Mm -hmm. they weren't spoon fed an answer. They're like, oh no, this is what really happened. It's like, are you kidding? Did you watch the same movie I did? Because the answer was there. It was just off in the corner. You right. just had to look at it. No, no, no. They didn't say that's what really happened. Like They did. They just didn't do it in words. Too many test audiences. I didn't get it. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and that's one of the reasons I love this movie is it, it struck that balance so well of we're going to come up with all of these things. We're going to present you with a lot. We're going to show you an interesting story. We're going to give you a complete arc. But at the end of the day, you have to make the decision. And it's a good set of questions to ask. 
was there anything what what else did you want to you want to touch on about this the use of the music yeah i i loved it i mean they they talk about beethoven's ninth almost right from the beginning and i think they play it four times or so Mm -hmm. throughout the movie um but not even just that was um even though I think it's probably the weakest scene in the movie where the two gangs fight each other. Yeah. Um, it's pretty early in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably even the second scene because I think it opens with the milk bar and then that, that's right after. Yeah, I think it's if, right at the milk bar. If, if you m- missed, if you came in just a little bit late and you missed them beating up the homeless guy, you would think, oh, these are good guys. They're, you know, they stopped, they, <laughs> they stopped, stopped this woman raped. from being raped. <laughs> they're, they're heroes. But I, I love that part because it, it plays, it doesn't play into the movie. It doesn't really fit, but it's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, it's that montage of the fight. And then you've got Rossini's The Thieving Magpie playing. And it's just such, like, how often you hear that song in movies all the time now. Like, it's, it's constantly used. But this is kind of where it started that whole idea of, of montaging a scene and throwing in music. Before Clockwork Orange, it really wasn't a thing you did. And then after it, everybody does it. It's, <laughs> it's in, it's in parts where you didn't need it or you're like, we just kind of need to hurt, you know, we got to condense two hours into two minutes and we're going to have a montage now. And mm. it's gotten to the point that it's a joke, but this was a montage that was a lot of fun. It didn't completely work with the movie. You could have cut it out and the movie would have been the same, but it was really funny just seeing the guys fly across the room and go right. 20 feet in the oh, air. Oh, it was very ex- exaggerated. Yeah. yeah. I think that's, that's the, the first true funny scene of the movie and it, it set up because you get these two intense moments of that opening shot you've get you get the homeless guy getting beat up and now we're going to pull it back and we're going to make you laugh mm-hmm. with this ridiculous battle i read a criticism that commented about that scene about the, the rival gang and the, the them you know, ripping the clothes off the woman and saying that the whole reason it was there was more for titillation than for telling any bit of the story right it doesn't do anything yeah i i think i i definitely could see his point in that because yeah it had no basis though that gang doesn't show up later in the film right. at all um no consequences from that at any point um you know they, they have their big fight the you hear the police sirens oh come on the police are coming and they hit their get in their car and leave right that's it that's it <laughs> so i get i definitely can see the criticism on, yeah. on that um, yeah, I think it was just something that was thrown in there to be like, no, this movie's going to be a little funny too, um, in its very dark humor sort of way. Mm. Um, but then, you know, m- music pops up with the very iconic scene where they break into the writer's house and they, they rape the wife and he's singing, singing in the rain, right. which was a last minute decision. I think it was something like the movie would pretty much been filmed. And it was uh, something they did right at the yeah, end. Yeah, I think I read uh, Kubrick thought the scene was too dry. Yeah. And you could see that without that sort of, I hate to use the word humor, but without that humor edit in, you could just, it's just people beating other people up. Right. And, you know, I guess you could throw some music over it, but it still wouldn't have played as well, I guess. No. Um, and, but I, I, you hate to use it, but I think humor is the right word. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a horrible moment. It's not to make light of what's going on, but it, it's a dark comedy. Like it's intentional. You're because sp- the thing is, even though that's probably the worst act that happens in the movie, it's not the creepiest scene. At least not to me, because I think if you go forward a little bit, 
the scene where the truant officer comes by. That, to me, was by far the time I was the most uncomfortable. The first time I saw it and every time I've seen it since. Alex is there. He's by himself. Mm-hmm. He's in his home by himself. He's only in his underwear. And they're lying on, they're lying down on the bed together. And the guy's got, the truant officer has his arm around Alex's shoulder. You see the teeth in the cup on the side. <laughs> and you're just sort of like, there's nothing's actually wrong, but I kind of want to walk yeah, away. This guy, this guy makes me feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Right? And the, <laughs> like, the way he would speak and go, mm, yes. yes. Like, oh, what is <laughs> happening right now? This, you know, I guess because it's back in that, that apartment that again, mm-hmm. that's the most surreal. All of the most surreal parts happen in that apartment. And that, that scene was no exception. And, and then when he grabs Alex right on the crotch and the, if you notice just before he does it, Malcolm McDowell's hand is right above his waistband because mm-hmm. he knows it's coming. <laughs> he was protecting himself. <laughs> um, and apparently that's one of the moments where there wasn't a real hit. Like he then slides his hand down real quick in this great timed moment of guarding himself. And then the actor didn't fully get like a grip. Instead, he's really holding Mc- the top of McDowell's oh, fist. Um, so yeah, there was just a little self-preservation on McDowell's part. <laughs> um, what other scenes stood out to you? Anything? <sighs> I haven't even gotten to my favorite yet. Like, did you have? <laughs> did you have a favorite scene? Uh, well, I, I already mentioned the driving scene. Okay. The, the whole drive. Was that back. your favorite part? I, I don't know if it's my favorite. It was definitely one that. You know, I could honestly just, it could have lasted longer. I, I don't know what it was about it because it was just so weird and dreamlike, surreal, because it was obviously just things projected on walls behind them or in front of them. It just, it almost was like Benny Hill sketch kind of stuff. Yeah, that's a great <laughs> comparison. But in this film, though, it it just worked really well. It was still kind of dark, you know, the fact that what they were doing, they he was hog of the road. He's not steering the wheel at all, just going straight. People are diving left and right. Cars are crashing around him, and he doesn't care. He's just <laughs> driving. And it, it's comical with still being disturbing yeah. at the same time. Um, I guess favorite scene, just some that stand out. We've, we've kind of talked a lot about them. Um, maybe when you get to the point where later in the film when the the Alex is shown back up at home and the out and the author has realized who Alex is yeah. and what they now have to do. He gets his friends over and they figure out, oh, this is what we have to do. And they've got Alex upstairs in a bedroom and downstairs they've got these massive speakers and they're blaring uh Beethoven's ninth, mm-hmm. which now Alex, unfortunately because of the aversion therapy, can't stand to hear. Right. Uh, and they're all down there. The, the author's gleeful, almost over the top gleeful, but everyone else almost has almost a, it's. They're very still. Very still, just kind of bored. And there's one guy with the, uh, the, 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 uh, the billiard ball. The billiard ball. Yeah. And they're just, he's just tossing them across and putting them in the pocket. Almost bored. It's just, I don't know. I, that, that stood out to me. To me, that's another, uh, mirrored moment. It's, it mirrors the opening sequence where, as it's the opening sequence where it pans back, Alex is the only one who really moves. Mm-hmm. And uh, he toasts the audience and he takes a drink. And then now you go to this and 
he's kind of the only one moving. There's the guy who's slowly, but other, you know, other than his wrist moving, he's not really moving. Right. You've got the bodyguard who's just standing there. You've got the woman reporter who's just standing there. But then you've got the writer. He's twitching and he's mm-hmm. smiling and he's blinking hard. And, and it, that goes back to that opening scene because it's that same pan. And then you see the whole, you get the whole scene as it slowly goes back and you're kind of seeing everything that's really going on. I thought the author, the, the actor playing the older author, I thought was, I think it was a little too over the top for me. He was almost, I kept, he reminded me of like uh, Peter Sellers in uh, Dr. Strangelove or something. He kept waiting for, you know, <laughs> you know, jump out or something. He, he seemed a little too over the top for me, but I understand that obviously this guy's life has been destroyed. You don't know what he was like before Alex attacked them. Right. Um, and obviously his life since then has just been turned upside down. He's you know, now a cripple. He lost his wife. I, he, he maybe driven to the point of insanity. But yeah, just the, <laughs> just, just the way he acted there, that was like a little too much for me. That's actually one of the parts I really love about this movie. Um, that actor was Patrick McGee. And when they were filming, he didn't want to do any of that. He goes, what am I doing right now? Am I ruining <laughs> my career? And it was Kubrick egging him on going more, give me more. And the reason for that was, Alex is supposed to kind of be in this, like he's just been beat up and he's recovering. So the, the energy has been sucked out of him. Mm-hmm. We want, he wanted energy to still be in the scene. And this was, his, this was Kubrick's way of doing it was we're going to put it into this guy and we're going to show how like far off the reservation he's gone. Um, and to that whole scene is great because if you notice just, be, just as Alex is arriving to the house, he's, he's typing again. And he's got on his desk a bunch of newspapers about Alex having right. gotten out. But the thing was, he didn't know. Yeah, he has no idea that's the same person. Right. He His backstory is he's this very liberal, anti-government kind of guy. Mm-hmm. And so he's trying to write all of these things to like speak out against the government. And that's what he did years ago when he first got attacked. And it's kind of ironic that Alex would attack him. This is the one guy who would defend him. Right, yeah. Um. And so it's just, it's, it's that whole idea of you've got people on the left, you've got people on the right, and you've got Alex in the middle going, I'm going to disturb the whole thing. Yeah, you know, that's something that didn't even really occur to me that depending on how you want to look at Alex, whether the author, the, the man whose life that Alex destroyed, you know, took his wife, took the use of his legs and everything, in a, in a sort of weird way, this is the man that saves, quote unquote, Alex. Yeah. Inadvertently. Mm-hmm. Um, real quick, though, the other part of that scene is the the bodyguard. Do you know who that is? David Prowse. David yeah. Prowse. A very young and fit <laughs> David Prowse. You can see his I, face. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would not. I mean, I've seen David Prowse now. Right. And I would not have recognized him had I not actually known. I, I'd forgot that he was in this. It wasn't until I was watching and then the credits went by and you know, David Prowse was, was Julian. Julian. Yeah. I'm like, oh, that's right. He is in this. Oh, he's. Big, tall, huge. buff, huge He's guy. Mr. Universe. Yeah. Yeah, would not have recognized him. That, explains was, that how, was fun. Yeah, explains how he can uh, carry down a man and a wheelchair yeah. down a set of stairs. Without, without effort. No help. <laughs> without any effort. What show right. I, I, and then he, so he even he carries Malcolm McDowell, who does not look like a light person. He's no. very fit, so there's probably a lot of heavy muscle on him. Mm-hmm. But he's just like, okay, I'll pick him up, move him across the hall. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I like Julian in that. It, you know, it, it's actually funny how so, such a minor character kind of stands out. I like Julian. He was very protective of the... Yeah. Uh, I mean, we keep calling him the author. Did the author even have a name? 
Um, I've always referred to him as the writer. The writer. Um, I he probably does. It's just one of those things that if I ever found out, I f- have forgotten it because right. okay. just in my I've always discussed him as the writer. I just wanted to, didn't want to be the one that sounded ignorant here. No, <laughs> but but I but I really like the way Julian very. I don't know if he actually even has any speaking lines. No, I don't um, think so. But you get a very uh, maternal vibe off of him. Yeah. Uh, he's very protective of this man, right. and you you see how he he cares about him. You know, he, obviously he's hired to help and to carry him down the stairs and whatever. But there are some scenes where you're you're watching it, and if you watch him, it's like, oh, I mean, this guy really cares for and loves this guy that he's yeah. caring for. Yeah, the part that really jumped out the most to me is just as the that they're eating, Alex is eating the the spaghetti, and the doorbell rings and Julian goes to get the door and he's halfway up the stairs and Alex is like, well, I should go. And then Julian quickly turns around. Mm -hmm. And to me, that was the scene that it was always like, Alex, you're not allowed to leave. Mm -hmm. And like, that's when Julian looks scary to me. I was like, because this guy's huge. He could throw you across the room if he wanted. And he's standing between you and the way out. And that was always, Julian went from, for me, protective and nice to an intimidating figure at just, just a turn of his shoulder. I kind of like how the film builds up and then kind of lets you kind of wind down. Because yeah. by the time you get to that point, it, a lot of stuff is done for the humor. Mm-hmm. The, the the violence is kind of stopped. Certainly reference it a lot, mm-hmm. but it, it stops. So when Alex is there, he's eating the spaghetti, and the writer comes and gives him the wine. And Alex gets – you can tell he knows something's up. Yeah. And so he's – you know, hesitant at drinking the wine and um, he tastes it and okay, it tastes okay, great. And he, <laughs> he goes about his talking and oh, maybe he's just his imagination. And right. then, of course, he passes out face first into yeah. the spaghetti. And it's all done, it's all done for humor. The rest of the film, it, I, I really didn't even click until we just started talking about that. There is in, like an apex to the film mm-hmm. and then it slowly Come lets back you back down. down. So by the time you're done with the film, it's like, huh. I can leave the theater. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it, that's just, that's just Kubrick's great storytelling of he, he builds it up, builds it up, builds it up. And then something happens and it's a slow trip back down that way. Yeah. You can sort of leave having felt like you, you went through it all, but not suddenly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I, I, that is a really funny scene to me. It, it's almost like somebody took, um, an Abbott and Costello bit. <laughs> Threw it through the deranged machine <laughs> yeah. because it, it has that whole thing of like, is something wrong with the wine? I don't know. I'll look at it. Let me read the bottle. Let me smell it. He takes the tiniest sip and he takes the most exaggerated swallow and he's like, oh, it's fine. And then he chugs the rest. In my head, in my head, the drug is in the spaghetti. <laughs> right. <laughs> maybe, maybe it was. Uh, we missed that part. Um, uh, and then he just says, I feel like at any moment, something awful is going to happen. He's in the spaghetti. He's passed out. <laughs> and it's so funny. And it, it's just, it's really old humor. Um, really clever old humor. Um, but that scene holds two of my favorite lines, and they're all because of how Patrick McGee delivers them, where he says, try the wine. <laughs> I love that. The first time I saw that, I just started laughing. And and then have another glass. <laughs> like he is so over the top, and it's so yes. ridiculous. But it 
it was just funny from start to finish. And even though he was like, should I be doing this? It's like, yeah, you should be doing it. Because it worked. It worked mm-hmm. within the whole tone of the movie. That I actually kind of like because you definitely get that that, that feeling that this is a person that you know has, has probably thought all these years, oh, if I had the chance – and now he's got his he chance. Yeah. And so he can't help but be just, <laughs> Right, exactly. <laughs> and that's why I believe it, because it's been over two years. He's mm-hmm. thought about it day and night. And yeah, he can't contain himself almost. Exactly. And, and, and that's why I like it. That's why I believe it. Um, cause it, they, they do a lot with, um, outward expression to reflect how you would feel internally. And that's just one of those moments that mm-hmm. does that. So what else have you got there in your notes? <laughs> My favorite scene, um, funny enough, is it's it's the most normal sequence throughout the movie, and it's when Alex is first arriving at prison. Yeah. I don't know why I like it so much. I, I couldn't tell you any one thing, but I've always liked it. I Even when I watched it again, I'm like, here it is. This is my part. And it's he comes in, and there's the white line. That's and almost Monty Python. It really is. You can't cross the white line, <laughs> but the, the the desk is three feet away, so he has to sort of fall <laughs> fall over to to sign in. Yes. Um, and it's uh the the prison officer is played by Michael Bates, and I think he's my favorite character in the movie after Alex. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's just he's another another one that's just a little over the top. A little over but. the top, but he, to me, his character kind of represented like this old world because you can see like yeah, this is yeah. this is a future where something's gone wrong and there's just garbage everywhere and gangs are everywhere. And then here's this guy who he's kind of a holdover from before all of that, and he's very proper and he's by the book and the, every last little motion he makes is is so military mm-hmm. and, and refined and precise. And I, I think if I had to give a reason why I like that scene so much, it's it's his presence. And, you know, the other thing about this movie is everything was recorded with live sound other than mm. the voiceover. So every last line spoken is in the scene and they're in that hallway and it's echoey. And so everything he says, you kind of hear a second time as it bounces off the walls. And, you know, he's like, stand behind the white line. And then. As Alex is emptying everything from his pockets. Oh, he's reading it off. Yep. Right. He's reading everything off. But then somehow Alex is sarcastically placing every item down. Mm -hmm. Bar of chocolate. Touch of his finger. My comb. And then he taps with his finger. And then he takes the – he's looking in his pocket and he's turned his pocket inside out. And he's like, oh, I have a penny. And then he puts it down and then he just tap. Like just to kind of rub it in a little bit. Mm -hmm. And you're realizing – Alex is still kind of our sarcastic little brat. (laughs) And I, when you put all of those things together and the other thing was, um, that scene as he's emptying his pockets, along with a lot of the other scenes are long takes with Mm. no cuts. Mm -hmm. Like he enters and there's a cut, he gets up to the desk and there's a cut, but the part where he's emptying everything and the prison officer is reading off what they are. It's a minute and 56 seconds with no cut. So imagine if like he's pulling the penny out of his pocket and he drops it. Start over. Right, yeah. <laughs> or or if the guy if Michael Bates you know stuttered a little bit. Start over like that just or, had or, to be or ridiculous. Or crack a crack a smile right, or a laugh because the way he he reads that stuff off again right. this is one of those scenes that's played for humor. Right. And he's like, yeah, because Alex, well, it starts out he empty your pockets. Well, Alex takes something and he just tosses it. And he's like, "You Pick that up and set it down proper. Right. <clears throat> and that's where Alex starts doing the, yep, reach and mm-hmm. set, set it. And then it down and he taps tap. it. <laughs> yeah. 
And and then yeah, and the way he's saying things. If I was Malcolm McDowell, I'd been hysterics. He's like two pens, one one, one, one comb, black, black, <laughs> yes, and like two pens, one black, one red. <laughs> like I just would have been like, really, you're gonna say it that way, red. <laughs> Although what's kind of funny and what it really kind of works is the whole time Malcolm McDowell is there, he's got a smirk on his face. Yes. It's like it's it's like he finds this humorous, and you think. Alex finds this humorous. Exactly. And so it's okay for for Malcolm to find it this guy humorous. Yeah. And maybe that's how it, they could do a two minute scene with this guy doing this right. ridiculous stuff and and be able to get through it. Because yeah. it's not like, oh, it's okay for me to find this humorous because who wouldn't? Exactly. <laughs> and he only has I, the prison guard only has a couple more scenes, but then mm. uh, as as they bring him to um, <laughs> as they bring him to the the lab, the yeah, this was actually a scene I enjoyed, and it reminded me what you're talking about. This is a very old school military. This is yeah. things are done a certain way, and you have to do it, right? Even if the rest of the world doesn't agree anymore, exactly. And, and you, so he comes and he, he drops them off, and you know he expects them all, and oh, is it sight? Um, yeah, sure, sure, whatever. Okay. Just put it over there. What? Yeah. No, you have to, you know, you have to sign for it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. He's like, isn't this the guard who's supposed to take him? Like, oh, right, bring him over. He grabs Alex. Don't you want to have the cuffs? Like, no, we're no, good. We're good. <laughs> yeah, and the way he tears the, the page off mm-hmm. of his clipboard, it's just so precise. And mm-hmm. I'm just like, was that the actor's decision? Because that's one thing I, I, I haven't been able to find out. Was that an actor's decision? Was that Kubrick? Yeah. Was it? Was it definitely comes across as a kind of a statement about bureaucracy. You know, everything in triple good, everything has to be this way or mm-hmm. it's no good. And, oh, I'm sorry, you forgot to cross a T, start over, uh, yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, and... It, but then in that scene, as they're dropping him off at at the uh, the lab, the um, the Leto Vico lab, um, the guard walks in and he does that whole like he always takes like right angle turns and he stomps his feet to say he's in place. And then Alex walks up and he mocks him yes. and then he does the very exaggerated stomping of his feet as he stops on the line. And it's just sort of like he always finds a way to get one in. Like all you had to do was walk forward. How are you gonna? How are you gonna make a joke? He found a way, and it's just—it's brilliant that they can, uh, for so many parts, they can find a way to throw a joke in there. So after uh, he's dropped off at the the medical facility, the the next scene is um, Alex is meeting the female doctor. Uh, a fun note is this is actually the first scene they shot. Oh, really? When he's sitting in his bed and um, and he and he's eating, and they're saying, "Oh, you're you're malnourished. We got to get you back up." And I'm like, "He looks pretty healthy. Looks pretty there. healthy to me. Oh, that's why it was day one." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And um, and then it takes you into the the other iconic part of he's in the straitjacket and mm-hmm. his his eyes are forced open and that was all real. They yeah, were, I were, read that. Yeah. They actually, in fact, he even scratched a cornea. Yes, because he kept looking around and his eyes, like his eyes, were first numbed. Mm-hmm. Um, and apparently so, the the guy that stood next to him, uh, putting dropping the saline or something in his eyes to keep his eyes moist, that was an actual legitimate physician yes. that was there on set to make sure that his eyes didn't dry out. Right. And that was cool. Yeah. Um, and then he just yeah, kept dropping them and, and McDowell agreed to do that scene under the condition that it would only be the 10 minutes that Kubrick said it would be. And then I think they went over. It's never. <laughs> it's never. Yeah. And they went over and then that's when he was like, well, I need you to like freak out now. And that's when that's the scene where he's like, screaming and yelling and apparently that was done towards the end of filming mm. and that's why he just is like he's just really like 
panicked and right and he's done and looks and, it yeah yeah and like that was just Kubrick pulling it out of him and it's just it's something you don't hear about in movies anymore of of, of a director kind of going for that bit of realism mm-hmm. um I, I think it's just one of the reasons I like it so much and you know that may actually be the point we're we're saying that we don't know when it was when it is that it happens that you start kind of feeling for Alex and I maybe that's the point because there's been this long period where Alex has been an upstanding citizen for lack of a better term. He's done, he's been very polite. He was in court or whatever, very polite. He goes through the whole prison thing and he's very polite. He follows orders. Um, You see him in prison doing and uh, doing the Bible studies and helping out with the the priest and church. Again, all being very polite, the model citizen or model prisoner, I should say. And so he finally, he wants out, he gets to the therapy and it's his favorite Beethoven symphony that starts playing over one of these, you know, horrific scenes that they're forcing him to watch along with and then pumping chemicals in him. So he gets this, you know, uh, this sickening feeling whenever you know, anything violent crosses his mind. So now the music and he, he's begging them, just stop, please mm-hmm. stop. Not this music, just anything but, you know, don't play this music. This is my, you know, Ludwig van. You don't play this, not the ninth. And maybe that's the point where you're thinking, you know, because they are taking something from him. The one thing good that he enjoyed. Yeah. The one thing that wasn't, you know, the raping and the pillaging right. or whatever that he used to do. The one thing that we could connect with as, a, as we hope, a good person that, you know, could be enjoyed. And they're taking that from him. Right. And it's, it's the one thing that kind of made him a sophisticated person to, to go back. That's He defends that, that opera singer. Um, when Dim insults her, it's like, no, 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 you don't do that. This, what she did was beautiful. And you're sort of just like, he's got some rationale mm-hmm. in him and they've robbed him of that. And the line the doctor gives of, uh, can't be helped. Uh, here's the punishment element, element, perhaps the governor ought to be pleased. And it's like, oh, they're getting a little bit of joy a little, out a little of sadistic, this. Yeah. Right. And I'm just sitting there going like, that's so awful to have <laughs> that. Like you could turn the music off. It, yeah. it's, it doesn't play into what you're doing. You just threw it in because it's, it's the scenes of the Nazis marching and, and right. Beethoven's ninth was, you know, something that was used by the Third Reich. And so they just sort of were like, all right, just throw it in there. It's like, you can shut the score off. It's fine. <laughs> no, we're not gonna because screw you, Alex. You're a horrible person. You mm-hmm. need to be punished somehow. Yeah. So that that really is kind of comes up. That's the only punishment to Alex that you really feel as actual punishment. How how to say it? Um it's cruel. It's torturous. Yeah. It, it goes the, the, where the, the punishment isn't fitting the crime. Mm-hmm. The yeah. one good thing in his life. is. Yeah. If he went him. through his whole life getting sick every time he wanted to beat someone up or rape a woman, I wouldn't have much feeling for it. Yeah. Right? Right. It's like, oh, well, that's a shame. But, you know, that's what you get. Right. But because there is this one beautiful thing that was in his life and he can't enjoy that anymore. That's yeah, that that's torture. That right. is maybe where you can relate. Yeah. And that's when you start to feel bad for him and you don't even realize you're doing it yeah. until it's kind of too late. And you're sort of just like, when did I start feeling this? It's almost, you almost have to sit here and start talking with someone about yeah. it. And all these little <laughs> things start clicking into place. Yeah. And then I think they, uh, they did a really good job of the other part is he goes back home and he finds out 
his parents have given his room away. Oh, right, yeah. And you start to feel bad for him, but the part that did it for me is when he goes, where's Basil? Where's my snake? His snake. Your snake died. It's like, okay, it's <laughs> it a snake. An accident. It's It died. Yeah. Right, and it's a snake, and, you know, most people don't find snakes as good pets, but at the end of the day, it's his pet. Mm-hmm. His pet's dead, and this is how he finds out. Like, oh, we gave your room away. We've kind of replaced you as a son, and oh, by the way, we let your pet die. Mm-hmm. Like, wow, thanks for that extra kick in the teeth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you're just sort of like, oh, oh, <laughs> why? <laughs> Yeah, and from there, poor Alex, it's just, that's where it starts spiraling. <laughs> His spiral begins. Yeah. And then it's that that great kind of everything comes together. He's in, he's trapped in, in the writer's home and he can't get out and he decides, I'm going to kill myself. He jumps out the window, but he lives. He lives. And the part where he's in recovery and you you find out that they've been like, reversing what they mm-hmm. did to him and he says i've been having this dream about doctors messing around in my head and messing around in my gulliver my gulliver <laughs> and you realize like oh they've been doing brain surgery on him and she's just like don't worry everybody goes through that like it's just a good way to kind of explain it really fast mm-hmm. but in a way that works yeah um but that very next part of her doing like the uh the the, the word association, the word association. The, yeah she shows him the picture it that is the only part of the movie that Kubrick allowed for improv. All all the things that Alex says, McDowell improvised, um, and it was it was something that McDowell insisted upon. He goes, "We can't have lines here. Just let me come up with whatever because we're winding down, and we just need to have fun with this moment. We've gone through so much. I just jumped out of uh, you know the character just jumped out of <laughs> you know third story of a house." We need to have genuine humor, not scripted humor. And so he just came up with all of those lines. And it's funny because out of all of the great dialogue, all of the great writing in this movie, no time for the old in out love. I'm just here to read the meter is probably the most quoted line <laughs> ever. And McDowell just pulled it out of thin air. Yeah, that's funny. It's, it's hysterical because I've heard that line without knowing where it's from yeah without having the reference yeah that, and then that's hysterical I, and i wonder if there's a small part of kubrick that was always a little jealous of just like you know that great book and the stuff that i wrote and that's what we remember the most <laughs> your ad lib yeah. <laughs> um but it's it's not even my favorite line my favorite line is the last line of the movie um you oh, know right but actually before we get to that um it, it's funny because you see the prime minister show up mm-hmm and the prime minister who wanted to make Alex his big achievement with the cure um, of, of conditioning him. And because there's newspaper articles written about it and this is a big success and he's trying to like, you know, increase his poll numbers so he can get reelected. They talk about that a lot about like, oh, our numbers are up. Even if it fails, you know, we can't lose. <laughs> Oops, it failed. Oops. Our numbers are in the tank. Um, so he's like, well, we're going to make you better and you're going to work for us and, and things like that. And what they have him do. Alex is just sort of like opening his mouth. Feed me. Uh-huh. Like Alex realizes I've got you over a barrel. Feed mm-hmm. me like a baby. And so he, then he has that, again, it's that sarcastic over the top exaggerating the way he opens his mouth. He doesn't just open it. He's like, Oh, yeah, just like that. Big, ball. Yeah. yeah. And then he, every time he takes a bite, a big smile comes across his face and he's like, cause the prime minister thinks like, Oh, this guy, this, this kid's going to work with me. And it's like, no, Alex realizes you're working for him now mm-hmm. and he's got you and they've fixed everything. 
And it's just that idea of, you know, it was youth versus establishment, and now it's youth working with establishment, and youth kind of, in a way, won. Conquering establishment. Yeah. Uh-huh. And it's that idea of, like, that old generation, like, fight all you want, you're, you're not going to beat Father Time because the next generation's coming. <laughs> um, and I wonder if that was kind of an intentional message. Um, um, but just that whole idea of the press is there and they've got the speakers and now they can play the ninth and right. he can like it again. Mm-hmm. And he gets that look on his face cause he's just enjoying it for the first time in a long time. Cause you figure that's probably the first time he's heard it since before going into prison right? and enjoyed it. Right. Um, and then that, that last line, I was cured. All right. I love that line. <laughs> it's yes. so good. You're I, meant to love that line. Yeah. And because you see what Alex is imagining, he's imagining like all of these like well-to-do, the press all surrounding. The yeah, end. but even even in in his because that that last shot is supposed to be his imagination, mm-hmm. and you see all of these people dressed in clothes that are not from that time period. They're like the men are in top hats and the women are in these long gowns, and everything looks like it's made out of wool. It's just this old material, right. and they're applauding, and he's having sex with a woman in the snow. Why the snow? <laughs> <laughs> we didn't see a single snowflake in this movie, but it works. And I was cured, all right. And I'm just sort of like, this is a great way to close a movie. Uh huh. No, it really was. I have to say, I'm really glad this came up in your list. And like I said, <laughs> and gave me an excuse to finally, you know, go back and kind of correct a mistake. I think I probably made. <laughs> I should have watched this film. Like I said, I wasn't ready for it when I first tried to watch it, but I should have watched it sometime in between because I think I, I would have definitely have appreciated it. A, a lot sooner than now, but no, it's, it's a great film. It's just, it asks the questions. It, it gives you a chance to come up with your answers. It, no one is really, the only people that are portrayed as idiots are supposed to be idiots. Alex is not an idiot. No, Alex is incredibly intelligent. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's just, I re- actually really enjoyed it despite, like I said, its reputation preceded it and the, the vi- ultra violence and all of this. And it's like, but no, but if you could do it tastefully, this movie does it. Yeah. It, it's, it's a, that fine line that it would take a, a, a brilliant master like Stanley Kubrick to walk and, mm-hmm. and he pulled it off. And I feel any other director, any other time, it, it probably just would have gone down as this like a creepy movie. Yeah. It probably would have been considered like a horror to some extent, and maybe they would have approached it that way. But glorify, yeah, the, the glorifying the glorified violence. the the violence and rape and all. Right. And instead, he he found the way to make it uncomfortable and a little humorous. And it's just it's one of the reasons. And every time I watch it, I notice something different. I did the other day. There was stuff that I was just like, "Whoa! I never saw that yeah. before. How that happened." Yeah, I obviously didn't have a copy to, to, to watch here. So I, I requested a copy from the library, but that didn't come in time. So, But fortunately, it was available on Amazon Prime, so I watched the copy they had there so I could watch the film. Well, just yesterday, the actual uh, two-disc set came from the library, which has got the commentary. And I will, you mentioned the commentary, the Malcolm McDowell, the, the, the person that did the commentary. I was going to mention it. Did you ever written down? Yeah, yeah uh, Nick Redman. Nick he's, Redman. Yeah, he's go. a film historian. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know where he is now. I don't know if he's alive now, but um, <laughs> he brought a lot of really good insight because yeah, uh, he, well. he knew a lot about the, the area and the time period and all of those things. Like he he brought up things that McDowell didn't even know. Uh, oh, one cool. of which was um, well, uh, don't actually. That's, 
I'm, oh, I you want to watch I'm, it? I'm going to watch okay. it. That's, that's, what I I, that's, the, that's where I was going to with okay. it. It's like now that I've got this nice two-disc set, I'm going to re-watch it. I'm going to watch okay. it watch all the special features that yeah. come with it and, and watch the commentary yeah. to, to glean everything off of it. Cause okay. I am legitimately curious to know more about yeah. the film. You learn a lot from that commentary, and yet they do a good job of still showing enough of the movie to have you entertain. And there was – oh, I'm trying to remember what scene it was because there was a scene – where they both just stopped talking mm. to watch it. And I can't remember which one it was now. And I should have written it down because I just remember going like, they didn't talk for the last two minutes because they talked through most of <laughs> Did it. Did the commentary stop? Did they yeah, go home? Like, right. And I, I thought I pressed something because I didn't remember that break in, in their conversation. I just remember like, oh, they probably just both sat back and watched this. Yeah. And I can't remember what scene it was. So when you watch it, you'll probably be like, this I'll, is a great I'll, scene. I'll stand it out. Yeah, I'll definitely point out. Well, absolutely. Uh, that was fun. I mean, I, I enjoyed it, and it was fun talking. Did we get all the points that you wanted to? We jumped around, but, yeah, I think yeah. we got to everything. I mean, I could easily go back and start from the beginning, and <laughs> we could have a whole different conversation. Well, I really I, – I beat myself over – beat myself up over how I was going to approach this. We wanted to talk about it, so I was like, okay, do I want to do – you know, the, on my Orphan Entertainment podcast, we do a kind of scene-by-scene synopsis mm-hmm. through most of the film and then discuss things as they happen. And I'm like, do I really want to go through that or should we just, and in the end I thought we're just going to go with the conversation. Yeah. And I, I think that, I think it worked. Yeah. I, hopefully it worked. Listeners, if you're out there, <laughs> <laughs> we can go in order of the movie, but we, we touched on every, every major moment. I guess the one scene we didn't was just the scene that gets him arrested right. is when he attacks and, and murders the woman. Um, oh right the, the major difference With the giant phallus yes which which was like his reaction to that thing was so genuine because he pushes oh, it and then it starts moving and he's like whoa <laughs> um the that that seems a, a little significant just because um it's a big change from the book because in the mm. book the woman is just like this sweet elderly lady and and while she is older than him they went and got an actress who's got a little bite on her you know yes. she's like she's got some fight and like you know she's insulting him and you know but the the cool part is uh she comes at him did you notice with what i don't remember it's a bust of beethoven oh right yes i did <laughs> see that yes yeah and i just it's those little things that they mm-hmm. do sneak in every few scenes or you're just sort of like he's being attacked with beethoven and, foreshadowing right exactly <laughs> And, and, but you, you have the sense that like, if she makes contact, she's going to be fine. She's going to, she's going to win. And that was all intentional. That was all what Kubrick wanted to do of, of the idea of, you know, Alex isn't just going in and attacking someone who's got no chance. It's like this kind of an even fight here. And he just happens to get in the lucky shot before she does. Yep. No fun film. I'm looking forward to uh, diving more into the uh, the movie now that I've got a you know a copy that's got a little bit more to it. I tell you what, yeah, you talked about the uh, the Blu-ray, and maybe I'll have to. I might have to invest in my own copy because <laughs> it's like it does. But despite how odd and you know some of the themes, it's kind of like you want to watch it again. Yep. It's really odd. It has a lot of replay value. You can watch it over and over again. Yeah, and, absolutely, and I do. <laughs> Well, we're going to go in a completely different route the next time we get together to talk about We're going to pull one off of my list. Yeah. We've chosen 2009's Inc. This is the independent film out of Colorado that I talked about and raved about. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll loan you my copy so you sure. get a chance to watch it. And then when we get back, we'll talk about that. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm, I mean, 
I've shared it with a lot of people, and a lot of people have enjoyed it. I've had a couple people that went, yeah, it was, it, was, it was okay, it was fine, whatever. Um, but I've never really had a chance to do a real critical back-and-forth discussion over it, so I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be fun. Great. So, uh, listeners, go ahead. Any comments on uh, Clockwork Orange or if you've seen Ink? Uh, you can send them to timeshifterspodcast at gmail.com or come join us on our Facebook page. Subscribe through iTunes, Stitcher. I think we're on Stitcher and Google Play. <laughs> and uh, that's about it. So thank you very much for listening. Uh, Matt, thanks again for bringing this film to the discussion. I mean, that was, it was, I'm really glad I watched it. Great. <laughs> All right. That's it. Bye, everyone. See you.